Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey everybody, Dr. Santosh here, your favorite pediatric infectious disease doc and your favorite research guy. Bold claims. I uh, like it. I yeah, I think we should both be their favorite. Like, it shouldn't be, you know, friendly neighborhood. Like, you're their favorite internal medicine doc. Sounds like sounds like type one fun. Did you know there's different types of fun? No. Like, is this one of those where, uh, you know, you can... Ha- because I remember a couple of instances where you told me I was having fun the wrong way. Well, yeah, you were doing it objectively wrong. But there is yeah. a scale of fun... Put forward by the highly scientific REI. Oh, outdoor oh. outdoor gear store. Uh, okay, okay, okay. So, we're, are they policing fun now? You're having type one fun right in this instant. You're enjoying it as you're doing yes. it. Yes, yes, I, I absolutely am. Absolutely right. Yes. Type two fun. You yes. do not enjoy while you're doing it you enjoy later in the memories. Like, you know, if you run a marathon or skydive or, I don't know, go camping, like you may okay. be miserable during the experience and then you look back on it fondly. Okay, okay. That you, yeah, enjoyed and, and everything else like that. Yeah, okay, got it, got it, fair. Type one, type two fun. And uh, this episode is going to be all type one. <laughs> well... I don't know. So this is for the person who's experiencing the thing, right? So I guess there's a type two because there's a little bit of a delay from when we record it to where the listener enjoys it. But I guess that would be two separate type one funds. 
like we have type one fun now, and then the listener has type one fun later. Unless, of course, <laughs> they get hangry. <laughs> okay, everybody who's listening, just uh, go get you like a, you know, like a Snickers or something, and then come back and hit play and enjoy the rest of this episode. But what it got me thinking about is, as I was eating lunch today, thinking about type one fun. Yeah. And type two diabetes, <laughs> and where the overlap, and where the overlap for those two might be. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if all these condiments could uh-huh. do medical things? Like, look, look at the wide array of flavors on my kitchen table, and how they could help or harm my health. Oh, sure, sure. So as a, for instance, you know, ketchup, at least in today's iteration here in the United States, is just straight up high fructose corn syrup with a, just a tiny amount of tomato and food coloring. So it's probably going to harm you. Hot take. Ketchup is a garbage condiment and you are wrong <laughs> for using it. I, I, I don't. You're in Chicago. So yeah. that's not really a hot take. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, ketchup is still a garbage condiment, but did you know it also used to be a garbage medicine? What? What? <laughs> garbage medicine? No, who uses ketchup for medicine, Josh? That's insane. Is this like, you know, for scurvy or something? The, and, and Ameri- the, way- the American yeah. Midwest for a period of roughly 16 years in the 1800s. <laughs> oh. Let's okay. start off. We're going to talk about, I mean, I condiment to mention that, but that's right. The condiments put on side dishes tried to have street cred in the early days of medicine. And of course, when we're talking about mid-1800s in America, we're talking about the prime era of patent medicines, snake oil salesmen, and traveling salespeople. Oh, Oh, yeah. Wonderful time. Absolutely. Where if you could, you know... The Music Man is a great example of this era where if you could drum it up just the right way and, you know, get get him. Hey, guys, everybody lean in, you know, or the, the parody, of course, on The Simpsons with the monorail. Yeah, you, you could sail anything you want to and then skip down before anybody figured out that your stuff was just, uh, you know, a pile of nonsense. Well, Ohio Doctor. John uh-huh. Cook Bennett, for example, created okay. a tomato sauce in 1834 okay, okay. and claimed it could treat diarrhea, indigestion, and rheumatism. Uh, oh, all those things, huh? <laughs> okay. All those things. <laughs> and by the way, diarrhea is a symptom. Indigestion is a symptom. So he's not claiming to treat an actual disease or a condition. He's claiming to be able to give some uh, symptom relief or something. Fair, fair. So previously, ketchup really wasn't made of tomatoes. It was a concoction of rotting fish guts, like fermented fish guts or fish sauce or mushrooms or really any sort of fermented sauce used to cover up the taste of rotting food was was deemed ketchup so dr bennett when he added tomatoes actually did increase the medicinal value of pre-existing ketchups because tomatoes meant it added vitamins and antioxidants to something that people were taking in like that that lycopene Mm -hmm. 
claimed it could treat diarrhea, indigestion, jaundice, rheumatism, and he had a pill salesman with a great 1800s name, Archibald. Ooh, make, I love Archibald. Make it into an extract of tomato pills. Now, okay, he okay. may have believed these worked. He may not. Uh, in case okay. any of you are wondering, they didn't. They did not, in fact, actually treat anything aside from the placebo effect. <laughs> but once his tomato pills hit the market, huge numbers of copycats were like, oh, well. And he also went around <laughs> selling this idea saying, you know what you should add to your to your patent medicines? Tomatoes. They have all the health benefits. They're red. They're not nightshade. They definitely won't kill anyone. What could it hurt? <laughs> and... It got to the point okay. where some of these people he was selling the patent to and the copycats basically were just selling straight up laxatives with no trace of tomatoes. And yes, oh, they did no. claim it could cure scurvy and even mend bones. Oh, so, no, Josh. No. <laughs> oh, and, that's so heartbreaking. And due to a lot of these claims, the ketchup medicine empire collapsed somewhere around 1850. But 1834 to 1850, let me tell you, ketchup was having a moment on the medicine cabinet rather than the kitchen table. Okay, (laughs) I'm I'm not loving this. I'm 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 I will say that I'm very glad I was not in this era. Um, And I am kind of heartbroken for our brothers and sisters who had to suffer through this. But. Okay, Uh, good on him. I guess he knew what he wanted and he went for it. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, and there's actually a couple different other podcasts who you can listen to that do whole episodes on the history of ketchup. There's also (laughs) a book about Dr. John Cook Bennett and his snake oilery. But (laughs) let's move on. Real quick tangent, real quick tangent. I am hearing you say ketchup, like, you know, I'm going to catch up to that thing. Instead of ketchup, is this a regional thing? Because you were raised in the West Coast and I was raised in the Midwest. Oh, would you rather call it cat soup? No, <laughs> catsup, I've heard. <laughs> well, that's wrong. C-A-T-S-U-P. <laughs> it's ketchup. Oh, is that one just straight up wrong? Ketchup. <laughs> catsup. Okay, okay. Right. There's, no, there's no felines involved in this. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to understand what's going on. Listen, Heinz 57, let's move on (laughs) from condiments that nobody needs anyway, because Mm. they are almost 30% sugar by volume. Yes. Uh uh And instead, move on to a few that actually may have medicinal benefits, if not enough to be stocked in your local pharmacy. Okay, gotcha. Uh, Now, as you noted, I am from chicago where we do have a slight preference for our toppings and one of the greatest condiments to chicagoans of course is mustard oh absolutely yeah that's it forms the base of your hot dog when you take it you know through the garden so there is plenty of other condiments and toppings on there but that's a pretty good universal starting point And people have been using mustard since the 6th century when Pythagoras, yes, that Pythagoras, thought mustard could help scorpion stings. Um, Similarly, Hippocrates would Uh use it in making poultices and wound care when treating toothaches. 
Okay, okay. Now, this has been studied on and off, and we're going to talk about some of these studies, which admittedly, you know, are a little softer, but Hectoin International, which is a medical humanities journal, notes mm-hmm. that while there okay. is no solid current connection to mustard use improving health conditions, the seeds themselves yes. do contain manganese, iron, and selenium that all have anti-inflammatory effects. And mm-hmm. while it may not treat you directly, and we'll talk about that, researchers at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada, noted that dry mustard powder mixed into hamburger grounds or hamburger meat okay, could okay. kill E. coli bacteria. So oh, okay. in terms of food preservation, just mixing mustard into your ground beef patty may not change the taste significantly, but it is low dose enough that it acts as an antimicrobial. And this is the researchers found that patties with about five to 10% powdered mustard would have this antimicrobial effect without impairing the taste. Very, very nice. Um, I'm going to do one quick shout out because you mentioned the Hecto and Journal, Josh. And so we're talking about you know, Ludwig Hectoin. And I don't know if you looked him up, but professor of pathology at Cook County Hospital and Rush Medical College. And I absolutely love that the, uh, you know, this journal is talking about antimicrobials in the tradition of Dr. Hectoin. And it jives. It really, really fits because this was everything in through the 1500s and 1600s when you had Europe going around and meeting the, you know, far east, the Orient, you know, Asia and India and finding spices to preserve their food because there was no refrigeration. So this is one of the many of them. Well, this also goes back to uh, your ancestry, Santosh, where in Ayurvedic medicine, the oh, okay. traditional medicine practiced in India, mustard uh-huh. use for therapy is pretty well documented. They, The Ayurvedics consider mustard seed oil from the brown mustard plant to be mm-hmm. good not only as a massage oil, but a hair tonic for skin diseases like vitiligo, skin infections like acne, hemorrhoids. So again, you're seeing really a surface level mixture kind of a wound care where mustard would be processed into a paste and mm-hmm. then held up against these external injuries it would also occasionally be decocted in water and used as a poultice for leprosy arthritis and a rinse for mouth sores oh hey <laughs> the mouth sores i totally get because again just like you're saying with the sur- surface of the skin just lowering the microbial content as a very general, uh, almost like an antiseptic, those mouth sores that you get, those little afte, those actually are from your oral bacteria overgrowing somewhat, but then just not quite getting along with your oral mucosa. So you can have normal bacteria in there, but for one reason or another, your oral mucosa says, ah, I don't like it and starts an inflammatory reaction. I will say, Josh, from southern India, where I come from in Karnataka, when you start to make any food, pretty much any food, the one of the first things you do is you heat up your oil, whatever you're going to put your oil in, and your very first flavoring 
almost across the board is you take a small pinch of mustard seeds, something like a teaspoon, and you put it in there and you let those mustard seeds burst open in in that oil to flavor that oil and that kind of a thing. I always just thought it was tasty. I didn't know about all the, the good stuff. Well, internally, mustard yeah. oil has traditionally been used in Ayurvedic medicine to lower blood lipid levels. Oh, okay. Reduce okay. buildup of fat or adipose, as well as treat intestinal worms, which I'm not I'm <laughs> not as convinced one, on that one. Yeah, yeah. That one we'd have to actually do some prospective control trials <laughs> for for all of them actually though, but it would be interesting to find out. Um we have done this kind of study, right, Josh, with and we've reviewed it too, with garlic in terms of affecting lipids and blood pressure and, you know, has a modest effect, but it looked like you ha- you would have to consume so much to have the same effect as a, phar- a pharmaceutical that it would be completely inconvenient. <laughs> like you couldn't possibly eat that much. So let's, let's talk about some of these studies that have been done on mustard before we move on to our next condiment. Okay. Um, Mustard has shown some anti-tumor effects and benefits against chronic conditions. Mm -hmm. One study examined the effects of a component of mustard, sinigrin, on liver tumors in rats. This was a three-month study, and it found that oral administration significantly inhibited tumor cell proliferation and reduced the number of rat liver tumors. Now, it was dose-dependent. Okay, with the okay. highest tumor suppression at 25 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Rats don't okay. have a lot of body weight. The equivalent <laughs> in humans would be quite a lot. That, that's a lot of mustard. Uh, but, but the lowest dose at 10 milligrams a kilogram still was noted to cause a significant reduction compared to the control, where, which didn't receive any. And that reduced tumor size by about half. So it may have some benefit in shrinking tumors. We already know it may have antimicrobial properties in protecting your meats. (laughs) Okay, gotcha. An in vitro study looked at the effects of several extracts of mustard and found a dose-dependent protective response in human hepatocytes, colorectal cells, and cervical cells, where the juice of the mustard leaf was found to protect against induced DNA damage, again, dose-dependent. So not through the antioxidant properties, as you usually see with plant alkaloids, Mm -hmm. but instead, and this was the neat thing, increasing expression of detoxification enzymes. So the enzymes that do DNA repair or remove dangerous tumors or the enzymes that actually do all the heavy work, Mustard seems to increase their expression. Oh, of course. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So we're talking about the, these are what are called housekeeping genes. You and I, Josh, we're actually having like little, you know, errors all the time, especially when our cells divide. Okay, that our our polymerases, the ones that make DNA and RNA, they're a bit error prone as much as we can do. And so we have kind of redundant protections against us creating spontaneous tumors all the time. And indeed, when these things fail, we get tumors or cancer. So, uh, you know, Josh, Josh, did you know, for instance, like, you know, elephants, 
how giant they are in Wales, it turns out that they have so much more expression of these housekeeping genes and these DNA repair genes and these kind of things that we do, you know, even per like body mass kind of a thing. So yeah, you know, we talked about it before. It's like, hey, could you do like CRISPR? Could you turn these things up? But if you could find a botanical that could turn these up a little, maybe you couldn't cure cancer, but maybe you could prevent it over a you know long time of use. Or you could take something that decreases risk without adding any significant side effects. I mean, there's not a lot of side effects to mustard, provided <laughs> you don't have an allergy. Sure, uh, sure. Another study looked at the effects of feeding high fructose diets to rodents for 30 days and found okay, that okay. the inclusion of mustard powder over the study period decreased fasting serum glucose, insulin, and cholesterol levels compared to control, although not enough to normalize them when, again, you're feeding high fructose corn syrup and friends <laughs> nonstop. Yeah. A lot of these are lifestyle changes, right? They they go together. So mustard or, or you know, in this case, our other uh, botanicals, they're not, they're not going to work all by themselves. You, you do have to live a healthy life to start with. But looking at the dose, again, dose dependent is, is the byword for mm -hmm. mustard, where looking at it for serum cholesterol and triglycerides in rats who are already diabetic, as well as our pre-diabetic. The pre-diabetic rats decrease their risk, not enough to normalize them. The mm -hmm. diabetic rats with the lower dose didn't move the markers at all, but a dose of at least eight eight grams per kilogram of body weight significantly and consistently lowered serum cholesterol and triglycerides. So okay. if you can, you know, down a bottle of mustard with, with each meal, maybe, <laughs> maybe you're getting a little bit less cholesterol. <laughs> I don't but know. Yeah. Eight grams, eight grams per kilogram of body weight in a human Santosh. What would that be? That's <laughs> so, you know, the average that we like to use is, uh, you know, around anywhere from 50 to 70 kilos, right? Depending on the person. And this is a healthy human being, right? This is not a very, very overweight human being, um, you know, who's, who's suffering from, you know, calorie induced obesity. Um, but yeah, so, you know, so eight times 50, so, you know, like 400 milligrams a day. Um, and, so and, by, yeah. by comparison, a 70 yeah. kilogram male mm -hmm. needs 56 grams of protein a day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so now imagine, imagine <laughs> 56 grams of protein. You're like, Okay, but eight grams of that is going to be topped by mustard. <laughs> yeah, you just go and go in a factor of ten. It's it's a little too much. It's a little wild. <laughs> so we're not quite at a point where I can tell you grab the French's instead of the statin, yes. but it is nonetheless an interesting finding. Yes. Yeah, and again, these are supposed to be combination lifestyle changes, right? So you have to do all the other things first, where you're actually watching your diet, you're doing your exercise. And then on top of that, using these botanicals, in this case, mustard, you know, for these specific things, they can 
be additive. They can be a little bit more helpful and give you an assist. If, for instance, you're doing everything right, but you have a genetic predilection um, for a little bit higher cholesterol or insulin uh, insensitivity, which leads to type 2 diabetes. So it's always like a plus one. It's it's not like the only thing, like if you load up on this, everything will be okay. Now let's look at two much more commonly seen spices. If ketchup and mustard are probably more American than anything else at this sure. point. Yeah. Salt, we could dedicate an entire episode to and probably make a few nephrologists very angry with us. So let's just go ahead and dodge that bullet. <laughs> okay. All right. And move right along to pepper. And there's a wide okay. range of peppers, yes. not just used for flavoring. It's uh-huh. been used as medicine across the world. Uh, Mayans used it to lessen the symptoms of asthma, which seems mm-hmm. counterintuitive. Like, I always think of pepper making you sneeze, not (laughs) relieving bronchospasm. Um, Sure, sure. Exactly. And by the way, we're talking about here pepper, like the peppercorn, right? Like the thing you grind up, not like peppers, like the, the fruit, the chili. If you're talking about the chili peppers or capsicums, the Aztecs utilize those as a pain treatment or toothache pain. And we have seen that capsation, which is the spicy part of a pepper yes uh does have some mild pain relief properties because it activates those same pain nerves Uh, now reports on arthritis research in the uk were some of the earliest studies that found capsation could be effective for treating osteoarthritis and fibromyalgia compared to placebo and again because it's a food product can be used safely provided that you don't have an allergy to that food right right and I think this one has been endorsed quite a bit uh, that it's part of a regular, uh, how should I say, it's part of a regular package for people who have pain, chronic pain. What, it are is you looking added, for the medical version of part of this complete breakfast? <laughs> I wasn't going to say it that way, but yeah, absolutely. It's, it is one of those where, you know, you just, you add it in to the other pain medications and sometimes it can actually provide quite a bit of relief to where you can ease up on the other more dangerous, uh, you know, pain medications such as the opiates, etc. Do you know we actually have a pain hormone? Oh, uh, I didn't know well, about it's, this. Well, it's a loose analog. Uh, substance okay. P okay. is a neuropeptide often seen on our pain-gating nerves. And okay. it's responsible for sending some of the signals of pain to the brain, okay. uh, thereby preventing transmission of pain feeling. So capsation kind of depletes nerves of this substance P. And simply makes it too hard for the nerves to recognize that pain is being fired. So it's not a strict exact pain hormone. You can't empty all these neurons out, but it is one of the primary messengers in transmitting pain information. So if you block it from delivering its message, Mm -hmm. you simply have a decreased sensation of pain. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. I understand. Okay. Okay. And capsaicin acts specifically on the substance P ones, which is why it's been used in pain control. So 
peppercorns themselves do have some capsaicin, but usually not in detectable enough amounts. Um, right, I found right. a new journal, the Journal of Medicinal Food, which has some really oh. interesting <laughs> stuff that we'll be we'll be going into this episode. It's it's a real journal. It mm-hmm. is not quite as high impact as uh, PNAS or some of the others that we traditionally use to research these episodes. Right. But it's it's good enough for government work, as my dad used to say. <laughs> yeah. I I we've said we've talked about this before, Josh, and I do want to reiterate when you have enough evidence to back up that any substance you know, can be affecting a disease process. And we understand, you know, to a pretty strong degree that it works. And you have, you know, good evidence of, you know, hopefully like, you know, prospective control trials and all that kind of stuff that it makes a a better thing than placebo, especially. Then it's no longer like herbal or alternative or supplement medicine. It's just medicine. So a lot of these things that we get into, you know, like Journal of Medicinal Foods, it's, you know, it doesn't have to be thought of as, you know, like hippy-dippy all the time. It's just, if it works, it is medicine. Now let's start getting, again, to the ones that show a little bit even more effective. We started with zero effectiveness, catch up. Mm -hmm. Then we moved on to probably not effective, but has some interesting benefits in mustard. Okay, okay. Then definitely effective, but not used because the mounts just aren't practical. Right, right. Okay. Let's move on to what I like to call Caucasian wasabi or horseradish. (laughs) That's, that's, uh, I, I don't know enough to. Uh, And I'm not part of either of those ethnicities, so I don't think I can chime in, but okay. (laughs) Horseradish, for those of you who haven't had it. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah. Is is something you can add to food to give it kind of, you know, again, that spicy taste. Um, it comes from the nasturtium herb. Okay. okay. And the horseradish root, Armore rustican radix. And it may actually, again, have antimicrobial effects specifically for dental disease. So it's Ooh. used as a, a antimicrobe against oral bacterial pathogens involved in the deadly gingivitis, as well as pulpitis, implantitis, periodontitis, basically anything around your gums and luxury bones where might get some degree. 
there's a unique set of of bacteria that like to try and hang out around your mouth and sneak in. Yes, and they do. And horseradish may be effective in treating them. So, Santosh, why don't you tell us briefly about Hasek organisms? Yeah, Hasek, the, the acronym Hasek, H-A-C-E-K, highlights some of the most common bacteria that can go from your mouth, okay, to your heart causing endocarditis. And Josh, you and I learned them as what's called fastidious organisms, really hard to grow in the lab, hard to detect. And that's why they were given- Fastidious, of course, meaning fussy. Uh, exactly pain in the behind yeah yeah you have to give them you know they're they're kind of wimps you have to give them just the right nutrients and you just have to give them the right incubation conditions in order for them to grow they're the orchids of scientist bacteria (laughs) exactly right But what you'd end up doing is you'd have a person who, as a, for instance, would have a damaged heart valve, either from just years of living poorly, uh, or they would have a a replacement valve, like a, a, you know, something that was a, a mechanical valve, which automatically when you put something artificial into the bloodstream, you can get platelets and bacteria and it can glom on. And what you'd have is that type of person would go and have a dental procedure and then they maybe a couple of weeks later they'd just have like non-specific fevers and they'd be tired and you'd check them out and it turns out they would have had bacteremia so those bacteria that live in our mouth h-a-c-e-k we'll spell them out in a bit and one of those would go and vegetate they would they would latch onto that heart valve and we're not exactly sure why it loves the heart valve specifically but it would form a little bump called a vegetation and then it would just grow and grow and you would just continuously shed bacteria into your bloodstream and be sick um thankfully josh because they're kind of slow growing and wimpy it doesn't kill a person right away but it can cause months and months of symptoms and it can be a mystery. Um, so my very, very favorite is Haemophilus afrophilus, uh, which is the H. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, each of the others, uh, A, aggregatobacterium, C, cardiobacterium, E, Iconella, which we also see when if you punch someone in the mouth and they bite you on your fist, you can get Iconella, you know, getting it. And Kingella, that's the one, Kingella species. So it's named after Dr. King, not that Dr. King, but another Dr. King. But yeah, it's, um, yeah, so all of those, the Haemophilus aggregate bacterium, Cardiobacterium echinella, and Kingella, those were the most common. But we actually have lots of other oral bacteria in our mouths, and we can get other bacteria. You have poor dental health, got a heart valve, boom, endocarditis. So when you're trying to destroy bacteria of an infectious sort, Mm -hmm. you need what's known as a minimal inhibitory concentration. What is the lowest dose of your substance that will inhibit or prevent bacteria from growing. Yeah, we don't have to get into it. There's a very specific kinetic uh, definition. But yeah, you have to meet that threshold in order to be called the the inhibitory concentration. So a group of researchers took horseradish along with this other plant, the nasturtium plant, Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and uh, basically turned it into a gas, ran it through with these bacteria in a bunch of bubbling neon test tubes, as you picture in any mad scientist lab. Sure. <laughs> and they found that uh, all of the species were susceptible with minimal inhibitory concentrations or MICs between 50 to 20 milligrams. And that's because they were releasing the synthetic isothiocyanates and minimal right. bactericidal concentrations, meaning enough yep. to start killing the bacteria, not actually just preventing it from growing. Right, the difference right. between putting up a wall and putting up a wall with shotguns. <laughs> yeah were around 0.005 milligrams per milliliter to 0.34 milligrams of isothiocyanates per milliliter, which is very doable. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So they did test in in all of these, uh, you know, kind of ways. So they had a, a gas test, right? And that's it's kind of a simulation of how many milligrams an organism would have to take. And that's just in, in straight up milligrams, but the agar dilution, the ones you were talking about, Josh is how we standardize most of the time in the lab where you played out the bacteria onto, you know, either into a little well where they can grow or onto a plate. And then you add your antibiotic in, you know, X number of concentrations and you see how it uh, it inhibits. The tough thing about equating that one, the agar, to humans, for instance, is that there can be lots and lots of times where when you put the thing right into solution with the bacteria, whatever drug you're using, there's so much in such a little space that it doesn't always translate to what's going on in a living organism. So that's why I'm glad they did both kinds of tests. But and both of these, actually, is, they also is reference they also reference the clinical studies that have demonstrated the non inferiority of TR and AR compared to standard antibiotics in upper respiratory tract infections like Mm -hmm. acute sinusitis or bronchitis. Now, we don't traditionally give antibiotics for bronchitis. You really shouldn't be. At least if you're a healthy, non-immune compromised person, you will recover on your own. But for people who are immune compromised, for these condiments basically to be (laughs) non-inferior to standard antibiotics, pretty good. It is, it is. Now, when you eat a condiment like that, right, it's not going to, the way that an antibiotic does, it's not going to get so concentrated in the bloodstream and get to the site of bronchitis and kill it. They were talking about a gas test. We don't have a great way to actually aerosolize this stuff (laughs) so you can inhale it. There's still a little bit of a challenge, but it's, you know, it's approachable at least. And the whole point is that they found these synthetic isothiocyanates, ITCs, Mm -hmm. were really the ones that were inhibiting. So the trick is turning those from the gas chromatography test into a tablet. They were found to be most sensitive to about 50 to 20 milligrams of a combination of horseradish and nasturtium, which is about only a quarter tablet of the commercially available drug, angiosin, is enough to stop growth. 
Right. So it's uh, a ratio of five to two of that, both of those. So you, you needed them together. And a lot of these happen to show up in the natural toothbrushes we've seen in indigenous populations who did those, which oh, cool. may be how they all stopped, you know, the danger of gingivitis. I yeah. have to stop watching <laughs> dental commercials. There you go. <laughs> yeah. As far as we know, we think that a lot of the bad tooth decay started when our diet became much more heavily involved in terms of carbohydrates, grains, that kind of a thing, because that provides a much better substrate for these bacteria to grow. And these grains, wheat, all these things get lodged in our teeth versus if we were subsisting on things like berries and roots and then, you know, animal products. Um, so milk and meat. So yeah, when we switched over from hunter-gatherer to agricultural, we had to learn fast. Hey, something, you know, we got to use something to prevent this tooth decay. Um, and it's pretty cool, you know, just by experimenting with what's growing in the backyard, <laughs> we found some and stuff. Uniquely in endocarditis, you always want to watch for the formation of a biofilm, which is not a bacterial movie, but instead a <laughs> collection of bacteria that have formed into a little bit of a sludge or an ooze where they're all protecting each other. And yes. activity exhibited by these ITCs was, again, demonstrated against biofilms. So yeah. when you're undergoing endocarditis prophylaxis for dental procedures, taking this as an antiseptic mouthwash, gel, or chip like a chlorhexidine could be considered, but also systemic administration, and it may actually do some preventative uh, work. So this is, horseradish so far is, is our winner of effective condiments. Not that you should be grinding <laughs> it up and gargling with it, but it is something that is actually clinically useful in the right preparation. Yeah, I genuinely hope that we're able to do something good with this. And, you know, for the sake of people, I very much hope that this thing isn't, it isn't patented or something like that. It's just recognized as a very, very useful supplement uh, to all the other things that we do. And it can just be added as part of preventative care um, to help people avoid these types of diseases because, Josh, we, we got to have some of these things where it's not just, you know, you got to go to the drugstore to get it. It's just, you know, add it as part of your daily happy life and, you know, it'll it'll help. Uh, okay, I, I well, let's rather... talk about <laughs> let's talk about a Middle Eastern condiment that has Ooh. been studied pretty extensively. Thanks to oh. our Journal of Medicinal Food. Yes, hummus. You wish. No, I'm talking... <laughs> I'm talking about the red lemony tangy salt substitute found in many Middle Eastern homes, sumac. Ooh. Oh, so is this the same as... There are toxic versions of it, so don't just go out into the woods and start looking for it on your own. But <laughs> sumac it. itself yeah, exactly. contains tannins, polyphenols, flavonoids, essentially. Let's talk about some of the scientific studies that have been done on it just in brief. And okay. it was even investigated as a potential supplement to treating COVID-19. And that's where this article was investigating from June 2021. Mm, okay. Now, it has been noted to have an antiviral effect. And this was a study that looked at HIV, 
where mm-hmm. sumac extracts, so not just the you know table salt version, but the extracts from it had some ability to inhibit HIV-1 reverse transcriptase and protease activity. Right. Uh, it showed strong antiviral activity against herpes simplex virus 1 and 2, mostly okay. where it didn't just interact with the viral envelope, but also the surface of the host cells, disrupting the ability of the virus to penetrate the host cells. So it seems to really act on these lipid envelopes. And that's why they were looking at it for the coronavirus, which also has a lipid layer in the virus envelope. That is so cool. So not only talking about, you know, clinical effectivity, but actually finding the molecular target for how these things work. That's so neat. Now, again, there have been no studies on whether it's effective against COVID itself. On the contrary, the medications were directly administered in clinics. It's just looking at, can this improve the resistance of the body to specifically lipid envelope viruses? Sumac studies showed it may decrease the tendency to thrombose or form clots in COVID-19, and it showed it exhibited antithrombin activity with just 50 micrograms per milliliter. Oh, hey, not bad at all. So it did show in some lab studies that it could prevent coagulation of peripheral blood cells and improve blood flow, which occurs due to a high-fat diet. So again, a lot of these effects are mediated through lipids. It even has a very slight anti-malarial effect. Oh, fascinating. Uh, oh, real quick aside. Uh, people, please don't freak out about antioxidants as generally being such a great thing. Um, it is a very specific application for when you need antioxidant effect on, you know, just, you know, getting rid of free radicals and stuff and DNA damage. So it's not, you know, just because it's antioxidant doesn't equal good. But, you know, <laughs> so, but yeah, tell me about malaria. So there's about four or five different studies. Now, each one of these studies individually is not terribly impressive. They're a little bit weak, they're a little small, and they're underpowered. But when you start looking at a meta-analysis, meaning how many studies have been done, you're beginning Mm. to get a clearer picture that it really does have a lot of very small, barely noticeable, but clinically significant effects. So one study showed plant combinations in rats with sumac extract had high parasite suppression in vivo. Another one looked at cytotoxicity in lung cells for the treatment of chloroquine-resistant plasmodium, which is the most common drug we use to treat malaria. And sumac extract was one of only two in this 18 different extract study that exhibited anti-malarial effects without cytotoxicity, meaning it was not dangerous to the cells. The others were simply found to be ineffective. The tannins affected red blood cell structure and were incorporated into the red blood cell membrane, which increased the hardness of the cell and made it more difficult for malaria to burst out of the cell, which is how it traditionally destroys red blood cells. Oh, very, very interesting. Okay. So a a couple of different molecular targets, some on the host side. So like you're saying, maybe stabilizing or changing how the red cell is, and maybe some on the parasite itself, it sounds like. 
Yeah. And so again, a lot of these studies that we're talking about, the anticoagulation, the antiviral, these were all done with just oral concentration pills of 312, 625 milligrams per kilogram per day, which had no toxicity when taken every day for a month-long period. They also gave three gram sumac capsules three times a day to diabetic patients for three months without noticing any toxicity. Now, again, did they notice huge benefits? Not enough to start recommending to everyone. That's why we're not all gargling sumac like Flintstone vitamins, (laughs) but enough that it's not showing toxicity. And honestly, as testing for supplements goes, this is amazing. Yeah. I, I love the approach of this, Josh, because everything that we do in antibiotics, antivirals, antifungals, antiparasitics, we go after the pathogen. We, we attack the bacteria, you know, using something like penicillin, which attacks the cell wall of the bacteria, for instance. But we in infectious diseases, we're kind of falling behind our colleagues in oncology and rheumatology that are working on the host side. So like you're talking about with sumac, actually supplementing the body's ability to maybe protect itself with how it would change red cell morphology to help, you know, get away from malaria or, you know, other epithelial cells um, to, to fight against different diseases. So it, this, it's not just intriguing in the sense of, oh, it can fight off some stuff. It's intriguing because we can find a completely different approach to how we fight infections, which is totally awesome. And, you know, let's all remind our viewers, all of our anti-malarials have come from plants before, right? You know, the quinine from the chinchona tree, and now the the most common modality, which is artemisinin, um, came from a plant. So, you know, hey. So remember, health starts at the dinner table. (laughs) And that's why we're going to close out with chocolate syrup. (laughs) <laughs> oh, hey hey cocoa cocoa is a plant <laughs> i i know cocoa is a plant and cocoa you know without all the sugar and milk and everything is used medicinally all across like the amazon and other parts of the world <laughs> if you if you're telling me you know i can down a snickers to get rid of my lumbago nope, nope, no <laughs> i'm telling you that Back to the days, a little bit later than patent medicines. We opened with ketchup. Ridiculous. We're going to close with syrup because, you know, dessert. (laughs) I didn't even catch that. You're a genius. And a lot of medications, as you've mentioned, are derived from plants and specifically Mm -hmm. a class of plant compounds known as alkaloids, which are traditionally bitter. They have an acrid taste. Okay. And, you know, Chocolate, it turns out, pretty effectively covers plant alkaloids and hides that bitter taste and is therefore pretty eagerly taken by children or the convalescent. Okay. And I love this. Few substances are so eagerly taken by children or invalids, and fewer still are better than chocolate for masking the taste of the bitter or nauseous medicinal substances, according to 1899 text the pharmaceutical era. Josh, I am buying this book. <laughs> I'm so excited about this book. Uh, I, I'm just, I, I got to see, you know, 
before you sent it over this, you know, little, little thing about it. It is very chemistry heavy. Um, but some of the big titles I'm seeing on here, just like you said, chocolate, it's sources and pharmaceutical uses, but we've got one on classifications on gums, resins, and similar substances. Uh, and it's got a whole thing called a question box. So, <laughs> and, and it's that's- not, it's got Prince Josh of the old posters of like, you know, our pure crushed fruits, our famous mead syrup and original and genuine Cosmo, 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 buttermilk and toilet soap. What is toilet soap? <laughs> it's when your toilet oh. has to wash its hands. But <laughs> when you look back at the 1800s to actually make a pill, you know, before we had mass industrial revolution and all the different technological advancements, you had to mix it up, cut the pill, roll the pill, dry the pill, coat the pill. (laughs) This is a pretty lengthy process. That's why everyone was going with ketchup. (laughs) Okay. Or or that's why a lot of medications, when you think of snake oil salesmen, it's snake oil, not snake pills, because medications were a lot easier to serve up in liquid or powdered form. Okay. And All right. here's where we start finding chocolate syrup because druggists, best name for a pharmacist ever. <laughs> of course, yeah. Druggists would mix the bitter liquid remedy with a base of sugary flavored syrups like chocolate and take it either and advise patients to take it by the spoonful or mixed into a beverage. That's right. Your local pharmacy was the ancestor days Starbucks. Uh, yeah, give wow. me a cold medication with a chocolate flavoring and a little (laughs) bit of mm, a flat white for my malaria thanks Uh, alternatively (laughs) these powders could be poured directly into your refreshment of choice and the base for these medicinal drinks could be anything from whiskey to tea to water but you know what drink was gaining a lot of popularity in the 1800s uh is this going to be a soft drink carbonated water oh they're a tonic water yeah tonic water and hardly a pharmacy went without its own attached soda shop soda fountains what you're thinking of Uh from the 1950s like back to the future era soda fountains actually began as a pretty lucrative side hustle for pharmacists who struggled to make ends meet they would mix the pills but you're not getting enough people in every day for pills so you also run a soda shop where you say, hey, here's the things I can serve you the medicine in. And here's okay. also just a delightful drink you can have without medicine because I still <laughs> have all the flavorings and the carbonated water handy. Soda shops started as medication dispensaries. Wow. Oh, that makes me so happy, Josh. I actually didn't have the understanding that these came from you know, trying to treat people and make things better. Although I knew some of it, you know, it would treat indigestion and stuff, but I thought it was just, Hey, you know, let me serve some tasty treats. Cause I have some of the machines to mix some stuff here in my, in my shop. Yeah. So soda shops started in pharmacies. Now it also became a lot more prevalent when prohibition showed up because, well, if you can't have alcohol, I guess I'll go down to the local soda jerk. <laughs> well, it was a soda jerk because to dispense it, right? You jerk the, you know, the handle, you know, to open the the spigot or the tap. So we're not sure if they believed their own hype. 
I'm guessing. Well, no, no. Things like chocolate syrup weren't being advertised as this will cure what ails you. It is okay. this will make the medicine go down. <laughs> the medicine go down? The medicine go down <laughs> in the most delightful way. Oh, I love it. That's it for this week. The first yeah. in our series on the flavors of medicine, how the things you eat may help you heal, and the surprising reasons that stuff tastes like it does. So now we've covered how casual items on your dinner table were either previously used as medicine, may have future medical applications, or were just a bunch of bunk. I'm looking your way. Ketchup. I'll look at ketchup with you. That's what we'll do. I know, I know. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> or ketchup cats up. That's it for this week. As always, we'd love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. But wait, before <laughs> I go into the outro, yes. Santosh, I have some very yeah. exciting news. Oh, oh, Josh, Josh. I don't think they're ready for it, man. Like I don't we, think you're ready gotta... for this jelly, but it is a condiment-related episode. <laughs> so I know that we normally do our comic book medicine episode as our season finale. But Santosh, yes. Travel Medicine will be making its first live panel appearance at this year's C2E2 Chicago Comic Con from March 31st to April 2nd. We'll just be giving a panel one day, but we'll be yeah. there for probably the whole weekend. <laughs> Josh, I was so psyched. I was absolutely psyched when I heard about this. <laughs> so if you have ever wanted to see Travel Medicine Live, or you've ever wanted to hear the differential diagnosis, treatment, and pathology of comic book medical diseases, then yes. head on out to Chicago, get your tickets for C2E2. Our panel will be on Sunday. There will be more information forthcoming. But stay tuned, and for all of you who can't attend, we will attempt to videotape it and have our first video episode as well. It's a very exciting time. <laughs> so join us at C2E2 Chicago for a live show. Say hi, and I don't know, maybe we'll have a prize for you. Maybe we won't. No promises. But <laughs> say hello anyway. Yeah. Until yeah. next time, if you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially other than going to C2E2, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading about some of the fascinating things we discussed today. Our theme music Yay. is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And until next time, as always, keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, something delicious and medicinal in your mouth. <laughs> And once you've done all that, find a country that's open, make plans to travel, preferably to Chicago. And until next time, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.